0: welcome this is the fly fishing journeys podcast with host rob giannino where we have great conversation with really awesome experts from within the fly fishing
1: community you see the fly fishing lifestyle is a journey and we're glad
0: you're on this journey with us check out flyfishingjourneys.com for more podcasts and please subscribe on your favorite podcast player here's your host rob giannino Maybe like you, Alaska was high on my dream destinations I still needed to do. After 25 years of fly fishing, I wondered why I still hadn't made this trip happen. I've been so excited about recent trips to Iceland, various destinations in Canada, including my own lodge in Quebec, Canada, out west and the tropics. I guess Alaska remained stuck on that ever increasing bucket list. Well, that changed when my buddy Tim Camisa and I connected with Ryan Cokerhans and the crew from Alaska Remote Adventures at the Denver Fly Fishing Show last year. I remembered also having previously met Ryan at the Pleasanton Fly Fishing Show a few years back, and we talked about doing a trip then. This time, we were determined to make it happen, and with Tim equally excited, we got a trip on the books. On this podcast, Tim and I share some of our experiences of visiting Alaska for the first time. We dive into the five species of salmon that run by the Alaska Remote Adventures Lodge on the Mulchatna River, a tributary of the Nushagak River. We discuss the seasons and when best to visit Alaska, especially in this area, for the specific species of fish you want to target. Finally, we dive into the tackle and flies to set you up for a successful trip to Alaska. Stay tuned as we go together on this journey to Alaska. The Fly Fishing Show Tour travels the country every winter. From January until March, the largest consumer fly fishing shows in the world will be in seven locations. The stops are Marlboro, Massachusetts, which covers the New England area, Denver, Colorado, Edison, New Jersey, which is the New York, New Jersey, and Mid-Atlantic state show, Atlanta, Georgia, Bellevue, Washington, Pleasanton, California, the Bay Area show, and finally back to where it all started in Pennsylvania at the Lancaster Show. These are super fun events that are packed with teaching, presentations, and everything you would ever want to know or see in fly fishing. Find all the details at flyfishingshow.com. Thank you for being back on the next episode of the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast, and I am so excited we're finally here in Alaska. I have my good buddy Tim Kamisa co-hosting with me. From Trout and Feather, Tim, thanks for being on the podcast, and thanks for being with me here in Alaska.
1: You're welcome, Rob. I know we kind of tend to pair up whenever we're in Iceland, and we do that sort of trip, but now we said, we got to get out of the lower 48. Let's stay in the United States. Let's hit that bucket list destination, Alaska, Alaska. Here we are.
0: Well, you know, people always ask us, we're at the fly fishing shows, we're traveling all over the world. Guys, have you been to Alaska? We always say no. We've never been. It's always no. something we want to do. It's something we've never got to. But here we are. We finally made it to Alaska. It's been an incredible week here on the Mulchatna River, which we'll get into here in a minute. But for you listeners, the theme of this podcast is how to properly get dialed in and prepared for a salmon trip to Alaska. So, Tim, let me toss it over to you. We never had been to Alaska. What were some of the reasons you wanted to come to Alaska?
1: Yeah, yeah that's a good point because, you know, the, the first really big experience you and I had together was in Iceland. And it's interesting because there's so many similarities to Iceland except – We're now chasing salmon. Sure, they have Atlantic salmon over there in abundance. But whenever you think about Alaska, I mean, you think of wilderness. You think of eagles flying through the sky. You see all these images of bears just eating these salmon as they're jumping over waterfalls. So in my mind, it's like, let's get to this place where there's few cities. You got to fly in by plane. You can't get there by a truck. I'm not going to bring my Ford F-150 up here. I mean, it doesn't work that way. So we wanted to kind of get off the beaten path, get remote, get out into the wilderness and kind of see – What kind of fishing do we have up here? Because, you know, i had read a book that my buddy Christian Shane wrote, and he talked about the five Alaskan salmon, and and Rob and I kind of looked at each other and said, hey, let's go check off some fish, and we accomplished that.
0: Well, I want to kind of dial that back to our past winter when we were at the fly fishing shows. You ran into Ryan Cokerhance of Alaskan Remote Adventures, and he said, guys, you've never been to Alaska. Why don't you come out and check out what we have going on here on the Molchotna River system, the Nushagak, and the Stuyahok River. So (laughs) I want to kick it back to you, Tim, to introduce Ryan, because I know you guys made that connection at the shows.
1: Yeah, you got it. Well, the fly fishing show is just such a great opportunity to learn lots. And Ben Frimsky, he's the show's director, he keeps me busy. I'm just running about, doing as much as I can to give presentations and tying demos, and I had a free moment. I was just walking around, checking out some booths, and I happened to kind of walk across Ryan's booth. And I don't stop much, but for some reason I stopped. He had his little book there, a bunch of pictures. I'm looking through. And he kind of catches my my glance. He's like, hey, you thinking about coming to Alaska? I'm like, yes, I am. Yes, I, I am. <laughs> the answer's yes. Tell me about it. And um, Ryan, it was just cool because you told me a little bit about the system. I was able to look at some of the pictures, get a vibe for the lodge and what's going on. And I knew you were kind of one of the newer owners up here. But it wasn't just that. It was like the notion of getting off the beaten path. So, you know, whenever we made that initial connection, I said, hey, what about my buddy Rob, too? He does a podcast. You're like – I know, cool. Rob. And we're like, let, let's get into this fold. So, Ryan, thanks for having us up here, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for
2: joining us.
0: As we kick it over to you, Ryan, I want our listeners to know exactly where we are, you know, because we're going to get into the, the how-to and get into all the fish, the salmon, how to catch them, how to get prepared for an Alaskan fly fishing destination trip. But before we get into all the, the techie stuff, like the gear and the flies, tell our, little, uh, our listeners a little bit about where we sit, because... Obviously, Alaska's huge. Uh, You've got all kinds of fishing opportunities from flyouts to road system, from halibut to rainbow trout to all the Pacific salmon. So tell listeners a little bit about where we are and how you get here.
2: We are in southwest Alaska. We're about 250 miles southwest of Anchorage. So it's considered the Bristol Bay region, although we are about 100, 110 miles from the coast. So all freshwater river tributary fishing. Gateway Village is Iliamna. Iliamna is known as a fly fishing mecca in Alaska, Mm. and we are accessible only by float plane about 40 miles from Iliamna.
0: You know, that was one of the things, Tim, that got me super excited about coming to visit with you, Ryan, is that... We are right in the heart of where the pebble mine would have been. And I'm so glad that uh, that pebble mine has been really put to rest here. We, I know we've been trying to put it to rest forever. I know we've got several wins. There's been some pushback. But just this past January, the, U, the U.S. EPA finally finalized the Clean Water Act 404C, providing the safeguards that there's a high likelihood that that pebble mine will never be put into the Bristol Bay area. Can you talk a little bit about that process of the dangers of what could happen if the pebble mine actually did come into this system?
2: Of course. So Trout Unlimited put together the Save Bristol Bay organization, which we are guide ambassadors for. And essentially what they've done is research these very similar mines in other countries, other locations. And almost every one of them has problems at some point with their tailwater or wastewaters coming off from their mining process. So what that means is if that goes into the Coctule River system, it's coming into the Molchotna and essentially into all of Bristol Bay affecting the salmon. Sometimes that doesn't happen for years, but at some point, every one of those mines has leaked their tailwater or wastewaters into the river system which will kill off the fish population from all the toxicity.
0: I'm so glad that that thing's been put to rest. So that will give you a a fuller understanding of the entire uh, pebble mine and the the safeguards that have been put in place to protect these beautiful sockeye salmon. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to come up here and check out exactly firsthand What's going on with these sockeye? Because we actually got to fish the Koktuli River and to see these sockeye, these beautiful sockeye in the mouth of these river. And tell our listeners a little bit about the actual river systems. I know you're off the Nushagak. Tell our listeners about all the rivers that we fish here.
2: Absolutely. So the Molchatna is the river, our home river that we're based on. Um, we sit right over it. We look at it off our porch. We also fish tributaries coming into the Molchotna, the main ones being the Coctouli, where Pebble Mine was located, and also the Stewahawk. We have a few others that are smaller, Old Man Creek, Pike Creek. We will fish the mouths of those. They can be really hot for fishing. Eventually, the Mulchotna does flow into the Nushagak, which flows into Bristol Bay at a point most people know as Dillingham, a city Mm-hmm. Up at the entrance to the ocean.
0: So, not to leave that point, let's talk a little bit about flights. And you know, you mentioned you fly into Anchorage, and then from Anchorage, how do you get to where you are here on the nishigak and on the Mulchatna?
2: Yeah. So, from Anchorage, you're going to take a regional airline that goes typically out of Merrillfield Airport. It's about an hour to an hour and a half flight. To Iliamna over the Western Alaska Range. From there. Which was
0: absolutely amazing, uh, by the uh, way. Yeah,
2: like, it's incredible very I think we can have an entire podcast mm-hmm. about just the, the airline experience getting
1: here because even when we go into Anchorage, I don't know about you, Rob, but like we showed up, we get off our flight, and I look around, and the first thing I say to Rob is, These are my people. <laughs> I mean, I look around, I just see like fly fishermen, fishermen, hunters yeah. all around. I'm like, You don't see kind of people with this look at any airport. And then the experience just gets better and better as we jump on these planes to make our way to this lodge.
2: Yeah. It's amazing flight. You're going to see glaciers, mountain peaks, river valleys. Once you land in Iliamna, short ride down to Pike Lake, which is where our float planes will pick you up. It's about a 40 minute float plane ride over some hills, mountains, tundra out to the lodge. They land right on the river. They'll pull up right in front of the lodge where we're waiting to greet you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we've had an absolute amazing week. We we checked up all the boxes, caught all the salmon we wanted, and caught all the species that you have. So uh, let's kick it over to Easton. He's your head guide. Easton, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and your role here at the Alaskan Remote Adventures.
3: Yeah, I'm Easton. I'm from Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Uh, grew up fishing for salmon and steelhead and all the other opportunities, fishing opportunities that oregon has to offer. Sometime in college, I met a friend who hooked me up with Ryan and I just jumped on the opportunity to come work in Alaska and fish just like I've always loved to do. So yeah, this is my third season here. Yeah. And I've just been soaking it up, loving the bush and loving the river. Well, thank you
0: for taking us out. Tell our listeners about the species of fish you have here in the, in this system.
3: Yeah. So we have all five Pacific salmon, uh, the pink salmon being the the smallest in number, we only have a few pink salmon, but uh, the chums, sockeye, uh, chinook, silvers, and then yeah, those pinks. So all five of those, and then we have Arctic grayling, rainbow trout, Dolly Varden, and northern pike, and then a few sucker fish show up from time to time. But I'm I not call, gonna. Yeah, we may have, we may
1: have
0: seen found one, one sucker <laughs> Maybe <laughs> we're, not, we're not gonna talk about that. No, uh, like, get that we're not gonna, gonna, Cut
3: we're,
0: that. <laughs> So, uh, would you have a favorite, I guess that's a, a kind of an interesting question. Do you have a favorite fish to target or to go after or, or when you guest um, catch?
3: Yeah. My, uh, favorite fish to chase up here are certainly the Kings the o- or Chinook. Growing up fishing for those in Oregon, it's just always been a real challenge. So to come up here and get to catch them on a fly rod, um, and just see this magnificent fish still making its way up river, uh, it's pretty cool. They're, um in decline across the state and across the whole Pacific coast. So to see a healthy population here on the Bristol Bay region is is pretty cool. So how many miles would you say you are up from the ocean? Yeah, so we're about 130 river miles from from Dillingham, from where the Nushigak uh, dumps into Bristol Bay.
0: Okay, and so these kings get how far up past you even?
3: Uh, they'll probably go another... 30, 40 miles upriver from us. So they're making, yeah, 100 and, you know, pushing 200 mile trip, which isn't quite as far as in other places, but uh, it's still an impressive journey. And what is your king season here on the uh, Molchotna River? You start seeing them when,
0: and are they silver or tall? Listen to a little bit about the, the calendar cycle of the kings.
3: Yeah, so the kings are basically our first salmon species to show up. So, starting in late June, early July, we start seeing them in the river. It varies year to year, but um, they'll run the first two, three weeks of July, and then the season closes on July 26th. To talk about this magnificent journey for these kings
1: and other fish, Easton, I noticed that some of these salmon that Rob and I have been catching had kind of a white line on them, and you explained that to us. Will you explain that to the listeners?
3: Yeah. So, um, Bristol Bay is one of the largest uh, commercial salmon fisheries in the world. It's uh, responsible for about 80% of the world's sockeye salmon comes from Bristol Bay. So there is a huge amount of commercial fishing happening happening there. One of the techniques they use to catch the fish in Bristol Bay is gill netting. So basically the fish swim through a net, their head gets stuck just behind the gill plate, they pull the net in and rip the fish out of the net. Uh, sometimes though, the fish escape. And so you'll see, we'll, we'll catch fish here on the Molchatna that have escaped gill nets. And the way that shows up for us is a ring right behind their gill net, kind of just, just behind their head or right behind their gill plate from where they were caught in the net temporarily and then escaped and, and, and still made their journey upriver. Yeah, so. these are fighting fish, aren't they?
0: Yeah. Tim, talk a little bit about your experience with these kings. I know we came and we weren't sure if it was going to be chums, is it going to be kings, sockeye. We had no idea. I couldn't tell you in experience from catching one salmon to the next. Right now I feel like I can tell you very strongly about what the different experiences are from one salmon to the next. So so coming in, like what did you think about the kings and how is that this week maybe change that?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question, Rob, because you know, I didn't know much about them. I knew they could grow up to fifty pounds. I mean you see these these images. Ryan's nodding his head like these like just gigantic king salmon. And Rob and I kinda had this running joke like, let's just maybe fish for kings for half a day, get that out of our system, go catch a couple big ones and move on. And then we got here and we truly realized, and I'm looking at this board that Rob's going to talk about with these fish counts, the kings are declining. We have to really be conscious of that. And when we first caught our king, it was like, oh, this is great. It's a king. Like We can check it off. Mm -hmm. And the guides were like, that's a really special fish. And it kind of made us take a step back just to really let that resonate and let that kind of sink in that. These may not be here in X amount of years. Who who knows? We don't know what the future is going to look like, but we know that these are just magnificent fish that put on just an incredible fight. They have this 200 mile journey. They beat these gill nets and man, there's just something special. So for me now looking back, I wish I would have known more about this prior to this experience, but thankfully, you know, Ryan and the guides here really kind of, you know, it wasn't just about the fishing. It was also about educating us to the salmon and everything that, that they're fighting for.
0: That's awesome. Thank you, Tim. And I want to kick it over to our other friend, Daniel, who's also a guide here at ARA. And we actually met Daniel at the fly fishing show. And I said, you know, if I come all the way up to Alaska, are we going to get a chance to fish together? And he's guided us all week. And so today we said, we're going to take our guide to work day. We gave Daniel (laughs) a chance to jump in with us. And he's like making a few casts and giving it right back, give the rod right back. to us. I said, Daniel, catch a fish, please. Enjoy the day. Fish a bit. I'd love to see you catch a fish. This guy had the rod in his hand for maybe 15 minutes. Not and, even.
1: Not even. At one point, Rob kind of disappeared. He went back to the boat to grab something. I'm downstream. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into a fish. And I thought, I got to go grab something. And I turned around. I start walking back up. I come around this little tree. And there's Daniel. Rod just bent down in the middle of a fight. I look at him like, Daniel, why didn't you tell me you were hooked up? He's like, yeah, you know, just fighting the fish. I didn't want to say anything. And then the fun happened.
0: We're going to take a short commercial break to hear from Tim O'Neill of Norvice. What makes the Norvice different than another system?
2: There are a lot of rotary fly tying vices out there. The Norvice is the only vice that will truly spin when you tie flies, and there's a big difference between rotating a vice slowly and spinning it at a bit of a faster RPM. And being able to spin the hook on a zero axis rotation opens up a lot of doors for us in the world of fly tying.
0: Tell me about the introduction of colors to the Norvice system. When we obtained the company from Norm, he's Said to
2: me, just a very, very short statement. He said, You know, I always thought a colored Norvice would be a cool item. We brought out five colors radical red, sunset orange, shamrock green, liberty blue, and royal purple. We have five colors along with the black that you're accustomed to seeing with Norvice, and we've been doing very well with those. To find
0: more information and their online store, visit nor-vice.com.
4: Tell us about that experience for you today, Daniel Kitchen, that big king. Okay, you know it's always fun being out on the water with guests, and sometimes we have extra special days where they're just catching so many they need us to join in on the fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Rob hands me the rod and heads up to the boat, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to catch anything before he gets back. And I hate to use up his last half day there, but I also was watching these kings; they were pulling in, and I was getting I was getting pretty jealous myself. <laughs> so I put in the effort and. Just land my biggest king that I've ever got up here in Alaska with Rob and Tim right there beside me coaching me through it cuz we all know they got years more experience than I do out here. And that was
0: one beautiful king man. I mean it as red as you can be. At first we thought maybe it was a sockeye but it's like no this is yeah. not sockeye water. It's just the wrong spot for sockeye to be and we knew it was a king but as red as a sockeye. So awesome job man. I loved watching. I actually went up the boat so you could just relax and fish because I knew if I I stood there you'd mm-hmm. keep trying to hand me the yeah, rod yeah. back. So Yeah. Uh, It was great to be with you, and thanks for uh, sharing that. So tell our listeners, speaking of red kings, Daniel, tell our listeners a little bit about the life cycle of a king as far as when they come in or when they're fresh in the ocean
4: to that red color they get later in the season. Mm -hmm. So a lot of lodges that you see here in Alaska are very close to the ocean. So you're seeing these bright silver kings, and they're going to look pretty similar to the sockeye or the silvers. It's hard to tell the difference, especially when they're in that similar size range but we're fortunate enough to be far up river but not so far that these fish are deteriorating by the time they get here so we're getting these bright red kings that still have a lot of fight left in them and you can see their markings are just like nothing like you'll see somewhere else i mean like a lot of the rivers in the lower 48 Other parts of Alaska, when they get that big, they get those dark green colors, start to look a little moldy, disheveled. But these kings, they're still aged. You know, they're getting ready to spawn, but they'll fight you for 30 minutes, and they're just an incredible fish to have at the end of the line. Mm -hmm. You know, that
0: was one of the things that I, and I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Daniel, because when Tim had talked about how, you know, maybe kings weren't on the the top of our list, is because we fish for kings, quote-unquote, quote I'm unquote. saying, doing quote-unquote kings out of the Ontario system mm-hmm. when they're just like zombies, you zombies. know what I mean? Like they're coming up from the uh, from Lake Ontario, and by the time they get up to where we can fish for them, they're just like that really dark green color. They're like falling over, you know. They're, you see some dead on the side of the river, that it smells, and, you know, you're just pulling on like dead weight. So yeah. when I go up to the uh, Lake Ontario system, I'm looking for the, we'll say, quote-unquote, steelhead again, because we'll catch steelhead uh, up out of those systems, but they're also, you know, these lake-run kings, and they're just not a lot of fun. These kings, completely different. I mean, not even the same type of experience, because, when Tim, when you caught that first one, it's, it was a little more silver, had some red uh, markings on it, but it was more of a, a silver king. I mean, it looked like a giant like rainbow or steelhead, because it had all those rainbow yeah. marks on the top of it. Very much like a salmon would. So uh, it was just interesting to see and, and see the difference. And I wanted to ask you that question because you can really see the difference up here where some are more like looking like a traditional rainbow or salmon where some are like red, 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 sure. where those marks, those black dots seem to fade away a bit more. So
4: it's interesting to see the different. Types of kings you have. And the one fish that we had today, we were certain it was a rainbow until we got it to the net. Turns out to just be like a 20-inch king. Yeah, and that me- one was so bright. If you added one pink stripe on there, it would have been mm-hmm. a rainbow. And you call those jacks? Yep. So anything 20 inches and under here are called jacks, and we do keep those um, because they're trying to fertilize the eggs, and they're just going to make more jacks. And well, they're not a bad thing we're trying to preserve as many as these giant kings as we can but the kings however we are letting go any chance we get because we want these to stay in there fantastic
0: ryan let's talk about some of the other species you have up here the chum salmon i mean for me when i came up i saw the pictures of this this incredible salmon it had these paint stripes on it. it was green it looked like red paint had been ripped down the side of it black markings and for me, I really wanted to come up and catch a chum. And not only were they incredibly beautiful to look at, for me, pound for pound, the best fighting salmon that I found up here.
2: Correct. The chums are great fighters. It's interesting because you get so many people looking just to harvest meat in Alaska, fishing for salmon, that chums are not on the top of the list. They don't have great quality of meat to eat. They call them the dog salmon. Yeah. People feed them to their dogs. But- if you're catch and release, like we try to focus our attention on, they're great fish to catch. We get a high number of them. They will fight hard. They'll jump out of the water. They can be acrobatic. Um, they're going to give you a good time bringing them in. And so we love fishing for them.
0: Let's kick it back over to Easton. Easton, let's talk about this incredible uh, species of fish that really feeds the world, and that's the sockeye salmon. Tell our listeners a little bit about the sockeye. The sockeye here in Alaska and then how you guys go about catching them here in, in this area?
3: Yeah, sockeye are really awesome fish. They're the most abundant of the salmon species we have here um, on the Molchatna and, and in Bristol Bay. Like I said earlier, the sockeye salmon commercial fishery in Bristol Bay is responsible for 80% of the world's sockeye salmon. So there's you know he- healthy enough number for them to allow that level of uh, harvest. Yeah. So they come through in, in high numbers. We have over almost 2 million in the river right now, as opposed to only 30,000 kings. So that just gives you an idea of how many more sockeye there are than the other, other salmon species. They primarily feed on plankton and, and smaller fish, or just plankton and, and really small things when they're out in the ocean. So when they get up here in the river, they don't have quite as much of a predatory or you know snappy nature as do the other salmon species which primarily eat bait fish squid shrimp some of those bigger food sources when they're in the ocean the sockeye just yeah they're cued in on plankton and smaller stuff so um it makes them not as great of a sport fish for us just because they're not so grabby however they still can be caught and they are here in numbers. And so what they do bring us is amazing trout fishing and Dolly Varden fishing. Because when those huge numbers of sockeye spawn, the trout just go crazy for the eggs and for all the other opportunities that the sockeye provides. So they're really just the, um, the centerpiece of our fishery.
0: The sockeye.
3: Yeah, yeah, the sockeye. I mean, there's just so many of them. And you get out there and you look in the water and you see this huge red cloud of fish, just hundreds of fish under the boat. And it's just, it's incredible. I mean, you just really feel like, yeah, this fishery is alive and well. That's
0: so cool. I mean, yeah. I, we were standing in it. And Tim, I know I, I looked over you when we first started seeing those pink little, those pink giant bobs walking around. And like you're, you know, we're both very much active on Instagram and you see all the, the drone shots of the people just casting into a pod of sockeye and you see all that red go everywhere. And to then have my two feet standing in the river and having those red sockeye just like a few feet from me and having a lot of them, it was really like a dream come true. I mean, there's really nothing more to say. You come to Alaska to have those experiences and to see those sockeye right there and then to like even be holding a tail and see that really green head with those two chompers and have that red, red back. Uh, what an incredible experience to hold on to a sockeye salmon. And then release it back. I mean, you can certainly uh, harvest some some sockeye if you want to. Or you can re- release them back. And uh, we did 99% release here. We kept two fish all week just because we wanted to enjoy some salmon ourselves. But uh, we do believe in catch and release. And finally, Tim... You hooked a sockeye in the mouth today. On your last day, you had been working to catch a, a sockeye all week, and you finally uh, fair caught a sockeye in the I, I mouth. I know.
1: I mean, it was a tough week for me. I mean, The other fish, they just seemed to kind of come naturally. But Rob was really the sockeye fisherman. And the first day that we were on the stew, which was just – it's got a special place in my heart – I hooked this sockeye. It was hooked clean. It was hooked in the mouth. I didn't have to, uh, what do they call that?
0: Well, floss. Awesome, oh, we'll well, I wasn't was flossing that? this fish.
1: So I hooked this fish. It made this wonderful run down river left, and I made a jump, through my fly, just I still have that image just burned in my memory, so all week I kept telling everybody i 'm going to catch one of these fish i 'm going to catch it clean, and they just looked at me and they they laughed out loud they didn 't have to turn their be- their their heads on me so every day i 'm just i 'm getting to these sockeye spots i 'm throwing different colors, different flies to no avail i'm bumping into some fish, and finally the last day. I'm kind of working my way out through the sockeye spot and I make you know I'm, I say to Rob I'm down to three casts and I make this cast lay it out start stripping in and I feel a bump and you know if you snag a fish it, sometimes it does feel the same, but whenever I this this fish hit, I thought I got a clean fish and Daniel sees it and he yells over I think it may be a king and I'm like, yeah it might be because of that red and you know we're kind of getting things ready and Daniel gets next to us he's got the net ready he's like, oh, it's definitely a king it's hooked clean and I was a little disappointed. I know that now we'll kind of bring this podcast back around. Now I'm disappointed that I caught a king because here I am on my last day trying to catch a sockeye. I'm like Daniel just truly deflated me until he reaches out that net. We get that fish in and Daniel looks at Robin me and says it's a sockeye and it's in the mouth. And we just go crazy. I'm like, I finally got my sockeye. So that was probably, you know, that one special moment within about 150 special moments. But that one today really just kind of wrapped it up for me. Yeah,
0: beautiful sockeye. So finally, let's kick it over to you, Ryan, because there's two more uh, salmon here that we didn't get a chance to catch. One, because they're not in yet or not in at all this year. And we'll talk about number one as the silver salmon. I know you guys get an incredible run, of silver salmon. When does that start and how does that work for you guys?
2: We'll typically start seeing the silver show up in the first week of August. When they show up, much like the other salmon, they're in really good condition, very silver, great meat quality. As the month progresses, that will change. They start to become more and more pink by the time the end of August, beginning of September rolls around. You're going to be catching silvers with a lot of pink, a lot of red. They'll also get the hooked beak, the bucks, the males, we call them bucks. They'll get the hooked beak just like the sockeye. Um, And then by, you know, first, second week of September, they're essentially done with their Mm -hmm. spawn.
0: From a fighting or from a situation where you're trying to catch, like a catching and fighting standpoint, is it better at like the beginning of August when you've got the real silvery, or is it the same all the way throughout?
2: No, they'll stay pretty much the same throughout. And the beauty of the silvers, unlike the sockeye where you have to floss them or you're worried about getting them in the mouth, the silvers will chase down your fly, will use a lot of big flashy streamers, attract their attention, and they will hunt them down and hit them very hard. They're very acrobatic at times, jumping out of the water. Oh, this is so, just teed up for rock. You pro-
0: love to cartwheel
1: these pro- fish. So <laughs> you
0: got to get some of these silvers, buddy. Well, I mean, we have to come back is really what it that, comes down yes. to. We're, we're here, you know, yes. we're here pre, pre-August, so we're, we're not available. But it sounds like you guys have a ton of them that come through here, and it's just like fishing heaven. For like a good month and a half or whatever it is.
2: Yep. And we're lucky we can, sometimes we'll divide up the day. You might catch all your silvers in the morning and then go rainbow fish and dolly fish in the afternoon or vice versa. It's nice because at that time, the sockeye, the chumps, everything's laying their eggs, they're spawning. Okay. And you'll find those, those other fish feeding okay. on those as well.
0: So king season starts to decline a little bit as far as catching during that late August
2: time period. Yep. Yep. Exactly. We will still catch an occasional king, but mm-hmm. they're going to be very red. They're going to be very lethargic, and they're generally high up on those tributaries. Um, so at that point, we're, you know, we're kind of giving them their space, letting yeah. them do their spawning thing. We start focusing on the silvers that fill in really thick in the main river and at the mouth of the tributaries. So
0: we're going to kick it back over to Daniel because we have one other salmon to talk about. That's the pink salmon also known as the humpies. What can you tell us about humpies or pink salmon, Daniel?
4: So it's not too often where you're happy that there isn't a specific fish very present in the river. Okay. But humpies up here in Alaska, they are not the gold standard for salmon. And what they're usually doing is clogging up the river and delaying people from catching the fish that they're after Mm. and there's nothing wrong with them but they're a small salmon they don't provide the best meat and they're just not usually your target species now we've seen a couple pink salmon in this river before we usually catch one or two a year okay so what that means is there's no competition for the other salmon with these pink salmon. Because usually they're in high numbers and they're fighting off the other salmon. And you're just having to wade through them to get to what you want.
0: Wow. And it's like in, wherever you do find them, isn't it like every other year, the return?
2: It is. They they generally will spawn on an every other year cycle.
0: Okay. So if you do get them where they are, it's usually every other year.
2: Correct. Yep.
0: And so one year, if they're just not there.
2: Correct. Yeah. Because these salmon, what they do is they'll go to the ocean and spend an average of four years in the ocean. Okay. So for whatever reason happened with the pink salmon, yeah, they're an every other year spawner.
0: Tim, let me kick it over to you as far as giving the listeners an idea about getting prepared to come up to a a trip in Alaska. That's something that me and you are are really fired up about, whether we're going to Iceland, whether we're going out west, wherever we're trying to go, we want to make sure we're getting there with the right equipment. Working with Ryan, working with Daniel, working with Easton and the gang here, we prepared for our rods. What would you recommend, especially being here now a full week, what would you recommend would be the ideal rod weight to have available to you here for a trip in Alaska?
1: If there was just one rod that I was gonna bring with me, it'd probably be a nine foot eight weight, simply because it seems like you can really handle all the species with that rod. I mean, most of the kings that we caught, in fact, I believe every king we caught this week was on an eight weight, and that's nice to know because those eight weights, yeah, you, they're not gonna throw in the windiest of conditions, but they have the capability to land that, that larger size fish. For the chum, eight weight right down the middle. Mm-hmm. Same thing for the sockeye. You hook one, you know an eight's gonna get it in. Is it a little overkill for rainbows and grayling? Absolutely. But we weren't necessarily targeting the rainbows and graylings. We were targeting the kings. So those other fish kind of happened to be a bycatch. That would be my recommendation to others. Bring that nine foot eight weight, check and see if the outfitter has those available because that's going to be that Rob, which will turn over those larger flies. It doesn't matter what the weather conditions are. For our trip, we started off with a couple of days of rain, a couple of days of sun. Today we hit the wind. Through all those conditions, that eight weight was it was there for us. And you know, for the listeners, you guys probably know when Rob likes to travel and he travels all around the world. We overpack. I I'm not going to tell you how many hundreds of pounds we brought on this float plane to get here. We went over. Let's just put it that way. And I know between Rob and me, we had three weights, five weights, six weights, eight weights, 10 weights. There's probably more rods that he snuck in there that he didn't <laughs> tell me about. But at the end of the day, what did we throw?
0: We threw eight weights. And we also had a backup. So so we're going to kick it over to you, Eason, because I know uh, there was a couple times when we actually were a little bit undergunned on the 8-weight. Um, and that's when Tim got into that first big salmon. And there was a reason why we were in the 8-weights, specifically about the lines, which we're going to get into. But our 10-weights were, were loaded up with full sinking lines, and that wasn't right for this particular run that we were fishing. But there was a time when we thought maybe a, a bigger rod would be more apropos for the fish that Tim was fighting there on that first day. Uh, Easton, so what would you recommend would be a second rod to bring if you were targeting some of those bigger fish?
3: Yeah, so uh, here at the lodge, we have size six, eight, and ten weights for our guests. The ten weights pretty much only come out during king season, which is going to be, yeah, that front end of the season, first couple weeks of July, first two, three weeks of July, um, because there are some big fish in there. There is potential to catch a, 40, 50 pounder in this river. So if you hook into one of those monster trophies, like you want to get them to the net. So you better have that 10 weight when you need it. However, most of the fish we caught this week were more in the 10 to 20 pound range. And so an eight weight is sufficient. However, you'd still, I mean, a big, a 15 pound fish hanging in heavy current with an eight weight. It's not an easy fight. We had a couple of these fish on for probably 15 20 minutes because you just can't turn their head towards the net because they just bury in that current and yeah so there's a few moments out there this week where we were just like well we don't want to break the rod and we don't want to lose the fish so we just kind of have to wait it out and then we'd wear them out and get them to the net but that's where a 10 weight might come in handy is just to, to land those fish a little quicker
0: Before we jump back into the podcast, here's a short word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Are you a guide, a lodge, or a product manufacturer in the fly fishing or outdoor industry? I want to introduce you to and highlight Cross Current Insurance. Their entire team are great people and experts in their field. They have a guide insurance program that is amazing and very affordable. If you are a lodge or retailer, they also have programs tailored to your needs. These guys fish and are in the outdoors so they know the industry and the landscape. To get more information on a program that's perfect for you, find them at crosscurrentinsurance.com. All
1: right, Rob knows the million-dollar question. We come back in a year, and I say, Rob, what are you packing? Which rod are you going to bring next time?
0: Eight to
4: ten.
1: <laughs> that's it. I'm, I'm listening to Easton now, and I'm yeah. like, he's making a good point because I guess, and, and all the listeners out there, when you come to Alaska, you have to make a decision. Right. Which fish are you going after? And if you're going after that fish of a lifetime and you think you have that opportunity to catch 30, 40, 50-pound king, you want to roll the 10-weight the whole way through. Sure.
0: Because we like to have all of our lines rigged up in the boat. So sometimes you're grabbing the rod that has more application on the lines, not necessarily what you need for the fish. So maybe just have uh, both your 8 and 10 set up with a uh, sink tip, you know, because that full sink is not going to work in that particular. The full sink's great off the boat. Let's just, you know, that's kind of how that works. We get in sure. that boat water, that big water, you need a full sink line to, to work the current. But when you're waiting, we're fishing a sink tip the whole time. So... Great, great point, Tim. Stuff to think about. And, you know, uh, I was going to jump in there and I was going to ask Ryan, is, he always, is, is Easton always right to the point like this? Is it always like...
2: Always to the point. Always baby. to
0: the point, always like straight the point. down the middle, man. I've just enjoyed, <laughs> I've enjoyed getting to know him this week because like you'll ask him a question and he'll tell you exactly how it is. <laughs> He's it. not going to sugarcoat it. He's not going to tell you what you want to hear. He's not going to add any, you know, syrup on it. He's just going to tell you straight down the middle, and I can respect that. I can respect that
3: in a guy. appreciate well, it, Rob. Alaska
2: will do that to you. Alaska yeah. will do that yeah. to you.
3: Well, we just let the fishing speak for itself. You yeah. Know, that's what you try to do. So,
0: so we've got the 8-weight. We've got the 10-weight. Now, what if we wanted to get after some of these grayling or rainbows? What would you recommend there, Easton?
3: Yeah, well, with the grayling, you know, when we're throwing around little mosquito patterns, it's kind of fun to brace, break out the three or four weight just to get a little more action out of the fish. When we're fishing for trout, we'll be using sometimes bigger streamer patterns or, um, you know, indicator rigs with, with uh, egg patterns underneath. And in those situations, I like to use a six weight just to be able to move your presentation through the wind. Mm-hmm. Or get a longer cast or just, you know, a nice mend when you need it. So the six weight is what we use for trout typically. Uh, trout and Dolly Varden. And then yeah, the threes or fours for the grayling.
0: Now, if I was a guess and say maybe that's like ten or fifteen percent of my time here. I'm gonna fish the eight and ten most of the rest of the trip. Do I wanna just leave my five or four at home and just fish yours here? Is that is that fine?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a high end. Five, four or five weight is is pretty nice to fish. You know, right. if you have a rod you like, I encourage you to bring it because For sure. you'll be used to it. You'll know how to how to play fish with it or how it's going to load or, you know, it's just nice to have your own gear. But yeah, we'll we'll split up our, you know, when we're targeting rainbows, the, you're not, you're not going to hook into a salmon. And when we're targeting salmon, you might hook into a rainbow, but then you just pull them in with your eight weight. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty easy to bring two rods. Yeah, maybe a six and an eight. And then when you're fishing for trout, you use the six. When you're fishing for salmon, you use the eight. Perfect.
0: Daniel, we get the the rods dialed in. We know exactly what we need to bring. You're gonna bring a six. You're gonna bring an eight. If you want to fish for trout and you want to fish your own line, uh, bring uh, you know something like a five. I brought like a Douglas Sky G, and it was perfect. It's a five weight, so mm-hmm. something in that range. But so we've got the rods. What about lines let's go over the lines so what do you recommend clients bring to get prepared for alaska as far
4: as the proper lines so i have one main line that i always use for our king salmon and our silver salmon and that's just going to be a short sink tip so we have split shot we have weighted flies we don't like to go the split shot route but the nice thing about our river is these fish aren't sitting in 20 feet of water They're never deeper than eight to 10 feet, these holes where we're catching them. So that sink tip is always getting us where we need to be. But I also recommend if you're bringing your own, of course we do have all these lines available for you here, but floating line for our salmon, we have a couple options here. We can get them on nymphs, we can get them on egg patterns, but the most exciting thing is our silver salmon will hit top water flies. So the floating line for that in August, throwing poppers, that's my favorite thing to do up here. And I'm hoping that Rob and Tim come back for that <laughs> one of these years because they're just going to have a blast out there. Watching a salmon jump for your fly is something else. But for the trout, the grayling, you know, just matching floating line for sure. We'll throw a couple streamers for them, but it's pretty close to the surface where those trout are laying because it's all in that Sponix Hawkeye water. It's shallow. So the floating line just does it for all your trout and grayling work. So I would always say just like one floating, one sink tip. If you want to go full sink, go for it, but it's not a necessity.
0: You know, one thing you had mentioned there was the short sink tip. And, and, you know, you said a lot of really cool stuff. But after you said short sink tip, my mind went to the rest. I was just thinking about I had like an integrated sink tip line Mm -hmm. on mine. And I watched Tim catch all these awesome kings all week when I was more into the chum. Mm -hmm. But I kept thinking, what's the main difference between our setups? Because we were fishing almost the same lines. Mm -hmm. But the main difference I noticed in our setups is he was using a floated line with an attached sink tip. Like you can get a 5 or a 10. Those are usually super fast, too. And it was short, only 5 feet. You had a 5 foot on, right?
1: That's right. I I was fishing an SA line. It was there. Uh, infinity textured line and on the tip of that because they have a little loop-to-loop connector on it I was running around a five-foot sink tip that had somewhere around a five inch per second or seven and a half inches per second yeah. so there were times where I was able to make a cast count my head you know one two whatever right and then start my retrieve or let the swing go and put a little movement into it but yeah that that was something that I definitely found value in though I could kind of go back and forth and say today you are really the king slayer And you didn't change your rig up at all. But then the water came down. So maybe my sink tip was a little faster today. And I was going below the fish. And you were right in the zone. I mean, we could play this game all day. Who knows? But, yeah, we did have slightly different rigs that that kind of accomplished the same
0: thing. I was thinking the same exact thing today. I mean, three beautiful salmon on my rig. Two for me and then one for Daniel. And it Mm -hmm. was just that longer, integrated, maybe a little slower sink. But today it was sunny. The water was clearer when earlier in the week it was rain, 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 the water was up a little murky and you were able to like get that fly down fast. So I think those are just little intricacies. Like people say, bring a sink tip. You go buy a sink tip line from SA or anywhere and you think it might be the same as the next person's. If you really, really, really want to dial in your system, maybe think floating line with a fast short sink tip when you need that or an integrated longer sink tip like mine was 10 feet,
4: when you need that. If you really want to dial in your your setup, Daniel, what do you think? I think to go off of that, I know Rob had mentioned the windy conditions earlier, and we have a lot of windy days up here, and we all know that the more time your fly is in front of a fish, the better chance you have of catching that fish. And if you've ever watched him or Rob fish, you know that the time spent with them casting versus fly in perfect presentation in front of the fish is pretty high. They're doing a good job of keeping that fly there, so a really important factor is just choosing a line that you're going to be able to cast out there precisely deal with the windy conditions and get in the zone. Cause we can alter the sink rate. Like we can change flies. We can do split shot. We can add on extra sink tips if it's not enough, mm-hmm. but something that you're comfortable with that you can get in that zone, cast in those conditions with your rod. That's really important.
1: Yeah. And I'm hearing this from both Easton and Daniel. And I think this is really a point that we have to drive home because Rob and I love gear. We love to cycle through different rods and different lines and different reels. And we just love to tinker with our systems. But for those people who are out there listening, who they love to take fly fishing journeys like us, if you don't have that rod and line and everything dialed in, take a day go to a fly shop try you know find that local fly shop and just have them walk you through their arsenal of rods and some different lines just so you can figure out what matches your casting style because I think that when I heard Easton say that when you kind of teed him up to say you know what should people do should they just use your stuff and he's like yeah you can but get comfortable with your own gear then you know no matter where you are in the world fishing it you're really going to have just a a greater chance for success whenever you're comfortable and there's no learning curve you don't have to feel for the action try to figure out how many seconds do I wait until I do my double haul? You can just get right into it and get that fly in the water.
0: Fantastic. Daniel, talk a little bit about leader. Uh, what should uh, somebody be prepared for as far as uh, weight, You know, pound of leader? You know, mm-hmm. h- How am I going to get my
4: fly on my fly line? So for our leaders, sometimes we'll do a store-bought tapered leader, especially for our trout and grayling fishing. I usually end up tying all my own leaders up here just because We don't resupply too often, and it's easy to get spools of line, and it's a lot harder to restock leaders all season long. So the poundage that we're talking about here, I'll taper down to a 20, maybe a 15-pound test for kings. But I like to stay in that 20 range because luckily these fish are not line shy. They've never seen a hook or line before, and that makes a big difference here because we can fish that 20-pound line and be pretty confident we're not going to snap it off and still get in on these fish. So I'll usually go like a 45 to a 30 and then a 20. Mm -hmm. And we like to keep these pretty short for the the streamer fishing because once again, we're throwing in those windy conditions. They're not line shy. So if we just run like a four foot leader, what was it you had on today, Tim?
1: Yeah, you know what, the, the entire week, not just today, I was running my five foot sink tip And attached to that, I literally had 20-pound test, about four feet of 20-pound. I was running the SA's, it was there. Daniel, it wasn't just today, it was the entire week. The the system that I ran off my five-foot sink tip was just straight 20-pound SA Absolute Fluorocarbon. And I felt very comfortable with that 20-pound test SA's got some great stuff. I mean, it's no secret, I'm an, I'm an SA guy, but it's a really fine diameter, but you can put a lot of stretch into it. So I'm not necessarily looking at this fluoro like it's invisible or anything like that. I just, I'm looking, when I look on spools, I look and say, which one has the finest diameter and the greatest breaking strength? That one had it, I mean, that's what I fished with, that's what I caught all of my fish on, that 20 pound this week. Yep.
0: Okay, so we've got rods, we've got lines, we've got fly, oh, we haven't got the flies, Okay, so we've got rods, we've got lines, we've got tippet, reels, anything specific about the reels, guys, just make sure it's a good,
4: clean uh, drag, I guess, is the biggest thing. Yeah, biggest thing, check your drag. You know, Easton and I, we're not gearheads like Rob and Tim here, and most reels I've tried work out pretty well for me, as long as we're not talking about spin fishing gear. Fly reels, <laughs> fly reels, hold it together for me. And you know, today, I... uh Rob handed me his reel and I hooked into that King. Hadn't even looked at how the drag worked yet. So, I start, started just using my palm there to slow him down then realized I could tighten it and got it all figured out. So, I once again, I don't think it's a barrier to keep you from doing what you want to do. Like if you have a reel and it's working for you at home, it is going to perform out here. Mm-hmm. Just make sure it has a good drag. Yeah, that's you know, the moral of the Just drag, make sure you have a sure. good drag.
1: Yeah, and I didn't realize you were you were palming the spool. I didn't notice that. I saw that. him. Good was, for you, yeah. man. I saw him. He was trying to put the brakes on that fish. Uh, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. All right, well, let's get to the last piece of the puzzle here, and that's the flies. Um, Ryan, when you're at the shows and people come up to you they're at the booth and they say, hey, I want to come see you. I want to come up to Alaska. I want to catch some salmon. What are some of the flies that you recommend they bring up on their trip?
2: Yeah, so we are heavy in the streamer department. Mm -hmm. We will use a lot of streamers. So we're gonna fish for kings, a lot of kingslayers. We will fish a lot of Dalai Lamas. We're gonna use colors like purple, pink, and we're gonna rotate those through. Some days a white and black, or maybe a brown and black, a green, those colors will work. Some days those orange, pink, chartreuse even will work. So anything that has some flash, some flare, we'll also use, especially in August, we'll start leaning towards patterns that have an egg on them, egg-sucking leeches, flesh patterns that maybe have an egg on there, just because a lot of those trout dollies, they're gonna be eating up the flesh and the eggs that are dropping off those salmon.
0: Kick it over Easton here. So uh, one of the things that you had turned us on early in the week, which we kind of quickly changed gear was is make
3: sure you get some purple in your flies.
0: What, what are some of the flies that you like and the colors even?
3: Yeah, I think purple's good. I mean, it's when we look at it with our eyes, it looks like, you know, something out of a Valentine's card. But to the fish, it looks like, a, you know, a squid or something, a, a bait fish that they would be chasing after when they're out feeding in the ocean. And when they're up here in the river, they're done feeding. You know, they're just in spawning mode, but they still have that reaction to those bait fish imitations or squid or shrimp or whatever it is. So yeah, each one of those colors kind of imitates a different food source that they would see out in the salt.
0: Very cool. So colors, I mean, we've been rotating through. What color do you have on? Today was black. You know, the other day was purple. It could have been, you know, pink. We tried, Mm. but do you have a favorite pattern or pattern two for kings?
3: Well, I just want to return to one thing with the color. So yeah, like I said, the different colors imitate the the bait fish uh, or, or the bait sources, But the river conditions play a big role in our color choice as well. So we have rain events. The river comes up and then it drops back down. It can range from gin clear all the way to like chocolate brown. And so we certainly adjust our size and color based on the river conditions. Mm. And so, I guess, to return to your question, a favorite fly for kings, it just varies. Mm -hmm. So, today, you guys caught kings on, like, a tiny black Sculpzilla. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, it was a purple egg-sucking leech with an orange head because we had a little bit darker water. Today, the water cleared up, so that's why we were going with that Sculpzilla, a little more subtle pattern, something that's not going to spook the fish but might still entice a bite. So, we're just, we're always changing looking at the water, and uh, just experimenting until we find something that hits.
0: So do you work your uh, flies on to, like, say the chum? Say it was like a king chum day. Mm -hmm. Would you work the chum off of what you're fishing for kings? And, like, if, if you get a chum, you get a chum? Or do you have different flies specific to chums?
3: Yeah, I'd say the chums are more reliable biters than kings. They're more apt to snap at pretty much anything you throw in front of them. Whereas the kings, you'll watch them, you'll put your fly there, and he just turns his head. (laughs) So, like, it just, yeah, it depends on the day. I would say that chums are often bycatch while fishing for kings. Mm -hmm. But another thing is just holding water. Like, you start to notice that each species, each salmon species, likes a different part of the river. So, the sockeye are in the eddies, the slow water, the frog water. The kings want to be hidden under some moving current and out of sight. So they're just, you're not going to see a big pot of Kings showing their backs to you. They're more like, you know, on a deep drift hidden behind a stump and then you got to just know he's there. But, um, yeah, I would say, yeah, chums, brighter colors, Kings, usually something a little more subtle.
0: Tim, what would you say for a fly tire, from a fly tire's perspective, if I wanted to tie up some flies for my trip and get prepared in that way, what are my hooks and what my materials that I want to keep in mind when preparing for Alaska?
1: Man, that's like a loaded question, because you know fly tires can be just over the top when it comes to tying stuff. And, and by the way, to kind of give a little shout out to Alaskan Remote Adventures, when we walked into the lodge... The opening scene that you see is this table that has two fly tying vices set up, which was really cool. And I think we're going to tell a story about one of those vices in a night we had. To answer Rob's question, though, as a fly tire, you really have to be prepared for a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm thinking about the flies that we we fished throughout this week, kind of like what Easton's saying. We concentrate on certain colors and certain contrasting colors. That was one area of focus. We went with a lot of Zonker strips because they absorb water. They get to the bottom in a hurry. So we fish with a lot of weight at the front of our fly. We're talking cone heads. We're talking lead eyes. We're talking weights at the front, though there were times that Daniel would give us another fly and say, hey, try this one. There's not weight, but use this with your sink tip. So we have that kind of area to focus on. I'd love to tell you, just go out and buy a salmon or a steelhead hook. We use those around a size two this week. But then there were also some intruder style patterns that we use that really had that nice zonker strip built in, but kind of a smaller stinger hook to the point when, when Daniel landed your king. Day, he was like, Oh my god, that was the hook you used for this fish! Like, and then he caught one on that hook just a little bit later. So, there's kind of a variety at play, but kind of think about your favorite streamer materials, look at those colors you have, see if they match the ones that we've been talking about now, and then just incorporate them into. And this is probably the most critical part don't go cheap on your hooks know that that's like your last line of defense so make sure you kind of just spend that extra couple pennies on those hooks make sure they're sharp hooks test them before you cast them into the water and then hold on once you hook that fish so
0: good So good. Tim, in addition to all this amazing, you know, flying in and the float plane and the volcano, like flying right over volcano, and just the whole experience of going to Anchorage, eating crab legs. Oh my gosh. Dipping them in the butter. Butter
1: was so good. And
0: then just the whole kind of remote, you know, you are in a remote experience out here at ARA. What are some of the other things like wildlife tell us a little bit about the wildlife
1: yeah i mean the first day we're here you know we showed up we got a, kind of a little late arrival and uh, ryan greets us he's like hey let's drop your gear let's get you on the water as quickly as you can daniel had the boat fired up and we went fishing we chased after some pike and some grayling and then on the way back like we see this just magnificent eagle sitting on its nest and it was kind of like daniel I, I, we, you know rob and i are blown away we're like look there's an eagle right there and daniel's like guys you're going to see a lot of these eagles this week. (laughs) And we did. So that was kind of the start because you look around and it, I mean, this is our bird. I mean, we're both American. We see this eagle just flying and I can't tell you how many moments there were this week when you catch a fish, it's in the net and you look up and there's an eagle flying overhead. I mean, those moments are just burned into my memory right now because we had that experience multiple times. And then the other day, We're kind of riding back on the boat ride with Easton. And I look back, you know, because he's kind of standing behind us, you know, driving, uh, directing the motor one way or another. And he kind of makes this movement. And I figure, oh, Easton's pointing something out. And so I say, Rob, I think there's something over there. And Rob hands me his binoculars, which, by the way, if you're packing for a trip like this, bring a pair of binoculars. Just a great call, Rob. So he hands me these binoculars, and I look through them and I yell, ow and I hand them back to Rob. He's on the binoculars. Easton sees what's going on, and we motor over there. Tell them what happened.
0: So we see this first owl, and he's kind of staring at us, and he hears the motor coming, so he wants to take off. So he kind of flaps, and these owls have massive wingspans. So he flaps and takes off, and all of a sudden, like one by one, this whole owl family kind of just follows each other, and they have this kind of connecting voice or this... The speaker, you can hear them talk to each other, and they one by one follow each other around this tree and out to safety because they thought we were maybe intruding on them. But it was so incredibly beautiful to see these five beautiful owls just take off into the into the skyline. Yeah,
1: and I'm not sure about that sound. I don't know if I heard it. I'm pretty sure, like, Rob speaks the owl language because— <laughs> I mean, let's go back to the day that we had on that upper river. We're up on this river, we're up on the Coctouli, and we're kind of exploring a little bit, and we get to this spot where we think there's a rainbow trout, and Daniel's like, hey, let's let's get into this spot. And then all of a sudden, Rob just decides to go like all stalk slash stealth mode on us because he spotted an owl. And Daniel and I are like, where the heck did Rob go? And next thing we know, he's like in all camo. It's like the movie Platoon. He's like on his, you know, on his stomach, crawling up to these owls, hooting at them. They're making noises back at him. And he got this incredible footage of these owls. I mean, dude, it was absolutely insane. You scared us because we didn't know where you were. We were afraid a bear caught you because there's no way that, you know, I was going to run a bear this week. But we yelled. We're like, Rob, where are you? And he's like, don't worry. I'm getting some great videos yeah. of these owls.
4: I had to go a little National Geographic mode. Dan, did you, did you want to add something oh, there? I just said add. When we were worried about the bear, Tim's like, well, how do we know he's okay? And I'm like, oh, we'd hear a scream. The bear had got him by now. Yeah. <laughs> so fortunately, no bear attack. No
0: bear attack. But what we did have was not only that eagle uh, experience, but one other eagle experience. We were all... Uh, Driving home, and the first I saw, that we saw the first uh, boat go by this incredible eagle. and Then the second boat went by this incredible eagle, and then finally, it was us, and we went by this eagle, and he hadn't moved, and he was perched right there, this massive, massive eagle. And Daniel said, "You know, I can take you guys back by it again if you want to see him a little closer." And he literally slowed the boat down to just almost a, just a very slow hum, and we went by him almost at a dead drift, right up next to him, no more than ten or fifteen feet away and he didn't move he just stared at us and we have our cameras going on yeah. slow motion we got this incredible footage and then finally as we got up close to him he like just spreads his wing and his flaps off and we have the whole thing on slow mo video and that was just uh, an incredible moment right there yeah, you
1: can't you you really can't make up those moments you can't pay for stuff like that that's just the thing that you, you see on TV you see on you know different YouTube videos and you're like ah oh, I, I can't wait to go to Alaska and see an eagle and then you have an experience where you're 10 feet away and your guide's like, Hey, I'm going to get on the oars just so we don't scare this thing. And we go up to it and we don't scare it. And we're able to just kind of look at it and take it all in. And then it just kind of flies away and does its own thing. Yeah. Those are the moments that you come to Alaska for. I mean, there's a reason we keep saying this is a bucket list destination and why the heck did it take us so long to get here? <laughs>
0: and a couple moose. We can't forget the two moose no. that we saw. They were, they were beautiful. We saw a few bear tracks, but no bears. And so, um, yeah, it's been a great, it's been a great experience up here in Alaska. Yeah, before
1: we wrap this up, Rob, talk about your just favorite experience up here this week.
0: I had a blast, you know, with all the guys, I had a blast here in the remote experience and everyone's been so hospitable, loved catching all those uh, those chum salmon all week. I really wanted to come and, and hold a, ch- a chum salmon and see all those paint colors and uh, to have those pictures uh, is definitely a memory of a lifetime, but just I enjoyed watching you catch all those king salmon all week. And I hadn't caught a king until last night. We said, hey, let's, let's kind of come up with an idea to catch you a king tomorrow. So me and you went on the vice and we said, hey, let's tie up a fly. He said, what do you have in mind? So we started looking through the the, the different zonkers and the bead heads And said, What about this? What about this? And so we got some colors and said, how about pink? So we put the pink bead head on, and then we took the pink zonker strip, and we kind of worked that back. Mm-hmm. And by the end of this fly, I tied up. It just looked like double bubble. And so we named it double bubble. And he said, I'm going to fish that fly tomorrow. So I was fishing a few flies and not having any action. I said, wait a minute, I have a fly, I think I might work here. So we put the double bubble on and uh, just a few casts, let it swing. A king came up and smacked it and I hurt, I hooked and caught my first king salmon here in Alaska on a fly that I tied last night with my buddy Tim Camisa. Oh, I so. love the
1: experience. I mean, when we got this fish in, I remember Daniel right away said, hey, let's get a picture of this fish. Let me take the fly out. And we were like, no, no, no leave that fly maybe the first you know fish or a, the first fish in a long time where he said Le- leave that fly in there because that was kind of that summing up point i mean we caught some nicer kings after that one but thankfully the double bubble the kind double of it, bubble. man it really sealed the deal
0: wow what an experience what an experience here in alaska ryan daniel easton as well as isaac over there thank you guys so much for allowing us to be there sharing in this king salmon this salmon experience up here in alaska it's
4: been an absolute blast
2: yeah, thank you guys. Been an honor and privilege to have you fish with us.
3: So,
4: it's been a ton of fun. Thank you guys for coming up.
3: Yeah, thanks for coming guys. It was a pleasure fishing with you.
0: And Ryan here, before I forget, if anybody wants to contact you and try to c- come up and have an experience like this, what are the best way to get a hold of you and your Instagram and your website, that type of thing?
2: Yeah, we're pretty active on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook is Alaskan Remote Adventures. You can also find us online at alaskanremoteadventures.com. Email is info at Adventures.com. Thank you so much.
0: It's been a blast to be with you, Ryan. Thank you.
4: You've been listening to Fly Fishing Journeys with your host, Rob Giannino. To be notified of new episodes,
0: subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. For past episodes, check out flyfishingjourneys.com. Fly fishing is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us.